We're delighted beyond words that we will have baptism today. Uh, one of our brothers, I can't remember exactly how far back it was. I think it was this year, but it may have been as late as last year. One of the brothers in our staff meeting said, Lord, keep this, keep this baptistry open. And uh, uh, so we've all begun to pray in those terms, all of us on the staff. And it's, it's been a great blessing to watch the answers to prayer. I mean, when you see the, the young women who go in here today, you will be seeing answers to prayer. Of course, the answers from their parents and relatives and friends. Uh, but uh, the prayer of, of the church, I do trust you pray for all of the souls. Those of you that are members here, I pray that you, say, you regularly pray for all of the souls here the sanctification of those who know uh, the living God and for the salvation of those who do not. We should be whatever, we, uh, whatever else we may be known for. We should be known as a praying people. <clears throat> well, that being said, we're going to... Uh, I'm going to read more than I normally do. I usually just read the text that I'll be preaching from, and I will be preaching from several texts, so we won't read together today. In other words, uh, you will not be reading aloud while I am reading aloud. I will spare you that. And let me say before we even begin, uh, this is not terribly long, but it's, it's a longer stand than we usually do because I'll be reading out of three different books. Uh, in fact, I will tell you now so that you can be looking for them. Of course, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 1. <clears throat> and then we're, we're also going to read Psalm 110, a few verses from that. Psalm 110, and then we're going to start with Zechariah. So Zechariah's in between these two other books. Zechariah, the Old Testament prophet, Zechariah. <clears throat> And we're going to be reading verse, uh, chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. Zechariah 6. So, if you have found all of those, if, you, if there aren't many fingerprints on Zechariah, I encourage you to read it. It's a very important prophet for us. Of course, every word of God is pure. But there's much of our Savior, much of our Savior that's set before us in that prophet that we see fulfilled in the New Testament. <clears throat> this is true of all the prophets, but sometimes there's more than others. Zechariah. So we're going to begin with Zechariah chapter 6. And we're going to turn, uh, I'm sorry, we're going to begin with Zechariah 
And then we're going to turn back to Psalms and then over to Hebrews. You will see why I trust before we're done. <clears throat> All right, if you would stand with me one more time. If you have a, 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 a condition that makes it hard for you to stand for any amount of time at any point in this, if you need to sit, please, please avail yourself of that. <clears throat> Zechariah chapter 6, beginning in verse 12. Brethren, let us hear together the word of God. And speak unto him, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch. This is speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ whose name is the branch, and he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. That's why we're here this morning. This is part of his building work. He shall build the, til the temple of the Lord. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne, and he shall be a priest upon his throne and the council of peace which is the new covenant and the council of peace shall be between them both and now we will turn to psalm 110 we will read verses 1 and 2 and then verse 4 psalm 110 The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Some of you will immediately realize that is quoted in the New Testament. Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou. In the midst of thine enemies. Then verse 4. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And now let us turn to Hebrews. Chapter 1. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 1. We'll read the first four verses. <clears throat> God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of of his person and upholding all things, upholding all things by the word of his power. When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Amen. 
Please remain standing for prayer. O Christ, truly thou art the fountain, the deep, sweet well of love. Thou art the fountain of life. Thou art the son of righteousness that has risen with healing in his wings. And I thank thee for the mercy that thou hast poured out upon us thus far today. How I thank thee that we could sing heartily to the glory of our God. That we could hear the word of God read and that we have prayed together. And now, O Lord, for the preaching of thy word, how I plead. I plead with thee. Pour out thy spirit. Help me as I attempt to open thy word. Help every one of thy people to hear and understand and believe and walk in thy word. Father, this is not simply uh, a data gathering meeting, but thou dost speak through thy word. Speak to thy blood-bought people Father, if they need encouragement, oh, come, draw near, grant them hearts of cheer in Thee. Father, for those cast down, for those struggling, for those, oh God, bearing heavy, weighty, crushing burdens, come in Thy mighty power. And lift, lift their burdens. Lift and grant trust in Thee. Father, we always run off the rails when we take our eyes off Thy Son. May we ever be the fulfillment of Hebrews 12, looking unto Jesus, the author, finisher of our faith. May it ever be the case. Father, <clears throat> For those of your children that are joyful, I pray that it has come out of their heart and their lips as we have sung and as they have given attention to prayer and the reading of the word. Father, what sobering, sobering woes thou didst lay upon the Pharisees through Christ our Lord. Father, May there be no woes upon thy people here today. May all of us look up to thee with clear conscience, with joyful hearts, with praise, with adoration, with truly drawing nigh to thee so that thou wilt draw nigh to us. May we know that here today. Father, make thy presence known. Pour out that blessed spirit. Send the gale force of thy spirit. Move in us. 
Shake us out of our lethargy. Shake us out of our worldliness, if it's so. Shake us out of our fleshiness. And Lord, lift our spirits, lift our hearts. Shed abroad thy glorious love in our hearts. And may we love thee. Teach us to love thee as thou hast loved us. And help us to love one another. O Christ, as thou hast loved us. And I ask it that thou wouldst be glorified. In fact, I pray that everything we have done, everything we will do, will bring thee glory. Glorify thy name in this place, in these people, and in all the gatherings of thy people on this planet. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> <clears throat> the holy and infallible words that we have just read Reveal the glory and beauty of Jesus Christ as mediator. Now, the words are not in this verse, but they are in this letter. That is why these first four verses are so important. We're being introduced to a major theme with these first four verses. For those of you who may not know, a mediator is a go-between. Someone who comes between two hostile parties and reconciles them. That's the idea. There is separation, there is division, and the mediator goes between and brings them together. That is Christ our Lord. <clears throat> Jesus reconciles sinners to God. This is vital for us to grasp. We talk about being saved, and that's a good word, and I don't diminish it for a minute. But there's more to salvation than simply the word saved. At the heart of salvation and being saved is being reconciled to the God against whom we were criminals by our sinful life. Jesus Christ is the blessed go-between. And in this exordium, or those first four verses, we see all three of the roles that God the Father gave Jesus to fulfill prophet, priest, and king. Verse 2 says that God hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. That is Jesus' sacred work as prophet. He's God's mouthpiece. He is the greatest prophet that ever graced 
this world. He was the greatest light in this dark world. Because he is the word of God and brought the words of God. Verse 3 says that Christ by himself purged our sins. That is Jesus' sacred work as priest. Then verse 3 says that after Christ purged our sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. And there we see him sharing God's throne room as king. Furthermore, the passages from Zechariah and Psalms reveal that this was prophesied. Specifically for this message, Zechariah 6.13 prophesies that Messiah the branch shall sit and rule upon his throne kingly and he shall be a priest upon his throne, a royal priest a regal priest, a priestly king. That's a beautiful picture. Psalm 110, verses 1 and 2, and then 4, uh, declares, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand. You hear it, do you not? Sit you at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. And then verse 4, as we have read, The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. And of course we will find out at another time. God has no one higher than himself, so he swears by himself. This is going to happen. That's why we're here talking about it. It has happened. He has done it. He is faithful. He keeps his word. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. He's not going to change his mind. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. There's a good bit about this Melchizedek as we talk about priesthood here. So, it's vital that we understand that this is good food for God's blood-bought people. It's vital that we understand that God saves us through Christ's three roles. Speaking the truth to us. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He tells us of God. He tells us of God's ways. He calls us to God and calls us to God's ways. He is the priest. He offered the sacrifice that God delights in. He offered the sacrifice that completely paid the penalty for the sins of his people. And then he ascended into glory and is seated at his Father's right hand, interceding for us even now. At this moment, we are under the wonderful and beautiful gaze of Christ's loving and tender eyes. But they're fiery eyes for those who do not know him. May God settle that issue between you by your turning to Christ.
And finally, he saves us as the king. He knocks us off of our self-satisfaction. He knocks us off of our self-confidence. He wars against the lies that we live in. And then he opens our heart by his mighty power. Prophet, priest, king is a theme that is littered throughout the epistle to the Hebrews. And so we see it set before us even in this exordium. While some of those words are not used, what they mean is obvious. It's obvious. Therefore, the title of this message is Seven Descriptions of Christ. King. And this is part one. And I do deeply apologize. You don't have an outline today. It was been quite the week. So <clears throat> I'm thankful I have something to preach. <clears throat> of course, we could always just open up the Bible, right? And say, this is true. Believe it. So, may God, our Heavenly Father, send the power of the Spirit, which is the power of creation, the power of Christ's resurrection. What greater power do we need? There is none. We need this power. We heard a wonderful message on that from Brother Frank. Brethren, do you believe that there is power to usward who believe? Well, we need it here this morning. I hope you prayed all week for it. If you didn't, I hope that you'll pray all week for next week. This is not little. Don't expect me to come and fire up your heart. You need the Holy Spirit, and I need the Holy Spirit. We need the power from on high to move us off our fleshly confidences. And the always creeping love for the world. So may God send the power of the Spirit, which is the power of creation. It is the power of Christ's resurrection. To open our eyes, to strengthen our faith, and to sanctify our souls as He feeds us Jesus. Jesus, the bread of heaven. I hope you came hungry this morning. Hungry for Christ. Not just religious practice. And may the lost understand God's word and flee to Christ in repentance and faith. We plead for the souls of men and women, and children, and in God's extraordinary mercy, we'll be seeing answers to prayer in that water. So may we see more of it. May salvation fall upon some this very day whose hearts are in darkness. May the light of Christ shatter your darkness and draw you to him. Well, we have one, one main idea today, but we're going to break it up under several subheadings. It's this. The Son, the Son 
rose from the grave, ascended into glory, and sat down on the right hand of God. For those who've been in any solid American churches over the years, the idea that Christ died upon the cross of Calvary, that he rose again the third day in glory, is something that is the very heart of the gospel that we preach. But we often stop there and don't think much about his ascension and his sitting down in heaven. So may God give us light in those thoughts today. So <clears throat> we left off last time. Um, and by the way, as I said, this is part one because his kingship is so big. It could be a very lengthy series itself. But we do want to grasp. I, there, there's more to say about his sitting down at the right hand of God than I will cover today. So I want there to be a part two. We will then summarize the exordium and we will start moving through the letter. God willing. God willing. So last time our primary thought was put in the form of a question. What did the son do? What did the son do? The answer was he purged our sins. We learned that the Lord, or we learned that the word purged means to purify. It means to cleanse. Because sin is filthy, nasty, grotesque, an abomination to God. We need cleansing. Sinners need cleansing. Now, behind the word purged stands the Mosaic Covenant with its Levitical priesthood, the Day of Atonement, and the blood of the covenant. Those were types that pointed to Christ in his saving work as priest. We had earthly priests because the salvation of sinners is centered in a heavenly priest. A heavenly priest who offered himself. Now, <clears throat> we then considered how Christ purged our sins. This mighty redemptive purpose began before the creation of the world. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9 and 10 says that the Father and His eternal Son purposed they planned, they designed to save sinners, to save his people from their sins, as Matthew one twenty one says. God hath saved us, wrote Paul. And he wrote it to Timothy, his beloved son in the faith, and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose, there's the word, and grace. No one is ever saved apart from God's purpose, from God's plan. This is not the idea of men. 
It was not conceived by men. It was not brought to pass by men except for Christ. Now, it is true in God's sovereignty, he used people and nations in the outworking of his purpose. But they were simply living their lives. They didn't realize that they were fulfilling any purpose. When the Roman soldiers nailed Jesus to the cross, in their minds, no doubt, it was just another criminal, maybe just another religious fanatic. They nailed him to the tree, but they were the instruments of God. But the son knew what he was doing. The son knew that he had come to fulfill his father's purpose. So it was given to us in Christ Jesus before the world began. But is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Before there was a world, it was purposed. Then God created the world. Why? To work out his plan. And we see it. We see it. We learned it. It was manifest. It was made known by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to life through the gospel. Now that led to a second thought. The son was born of a woman to accomplish this redemptive mission. The world, this, this wonderful and beautiful world, even though it is under the curse of God, is, was and is the stage in which God is working out his purpose. <clears throat> The son was born of a woman to accomplish his redemptive mission. Matthew 1, 20 and 21 records that the angel of the Lord said to Joseph in a dream, Thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. This is a miracle, baby. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. What a glorious name can be interpreted several ways, but it's always about salvation. Jehovah saves, or the salvation of Jehovah, Yahweh. Then that son died on the cross of Calvary to accomplish his redemptive mission. Jesus' enemies led him to a place called the place of a skull, which is in the Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two other with him on either side, one. And Jesus in the midst. God's perfect plan. No mistake. This was not an accident. This was not a mission gone wrong. Though it looked like it to the disciples. We thought he was the man. But he died like a criminal. 
And Jesus could rebuke them later for their unbelief. You had the scriptures. You should have known this. Every time he tried to teach them, the scriptures say they even buckled up under it, not knowing what was being said, or just said, that's sad. We're sorry to hear that. They didn't get it. And that's a good time for me to ask me and you, do you? Do I get this? Do I understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, who he is, the God-man, and what he has done? He has not tried to do anything. You hear about this Jesus all the time in our culture. He's just trying to do stuff. He's trying to save some people this morning. He is trying to ply their fingers off that pew so that they'll walk that aisle or so that they'll stop their dancing and run down to the front, whatever. The Jesus that's trying is not the Jesus of the Bible. He was completely successful in what his father sent him to do. And when we look at him upon the cross, we are seeing success, holy success. Satan crushed his kingdom with a death blow and a finished salvation. But there's more. I should say a finished redemption. The blood has been shed. Christ is dead. But then he rose from the grave. He rose. You don't know any dead people that got up out of the grave. I mean, you hear stuff in the news all the time. They, they like to try to make it sound like people, oh, they died, but they came back. No, they didn't. The Lord makes very clear you die, die, cease once. Now, I'm not saying people with their hearts stopping, getting pumped again, being hit the electricity. That's true. And they go, well, I died on the table three times. Well, there, there would have been one funeral if he died. Jesus was crucified. He died in Golgotha. He died for his eternally loved people. He wasn't dying thinking, I hope somebody will believe on me. He didn't die on the cross thinking, I hope this works. No, he said, it is finished. He accomplished the mission. I mean, we could all shout a holy mission accomplished, right? Glory to God. Glory to God. So we now take up with that thought right where we left off. And it's that the sun rose triumphantly from the grave. Many people stop at the cross. And 
We love the cross. Again, I'm not denigrating it in the slightest. But you need to love the resurrection. The God-man story does not end at the cross in that bloody, dreadful scene. Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 7 says, In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. They had been at Golgotha. They had seen what happened, and they saw where he was laid. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door. And sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning. And his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him. The keepers did shake. Have you ever been afraid enough to shake? Some of you may. may, may, may I'll try English. <laughs> Maybe some of you have never had an experience like that. I, I only had one. I mean, I was shaking, and I couldn't make it to stop. I kept holding on to myself till it finally subsided. But <clears throat> here's some big, rough, tough guys. They were set there to guard this tomb. <clears throat> and they all shook like a leaf. When the angel of God appeared before them, that's just the angel. Those who've been washed in the blood of Christ will not shake in the day of judgment. But there will be some shaking there. Because when everybody sees the judge of heaven and earth, they will realize that the Christians who witnessed to them, who brought the gospel to them, were not crazy. For fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. They were out. And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye. You don't have to be afraid. <clears throat> For I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here. Brethren, those four words, at least in English, are among the most precious you will ever hear in your life. God gave you ears so that you could hear where he gave you eyes so that you could read he is not here. The most astonishing miracle in the, in the history of mankind just happened. A man who had given up the spirit, given up his ghost, so to speak, rose from the dead in triumph. God receiving the sacrifice he had made. He conquered death. Do we get that? He is not here should set something in your heart free. He's not here. What does that mean? He paid the price for the sins of sinful people. Every single sin. His blood washed it away. Cleansed us. This is what we mean is he purged us, even though that's actually the Old Testament language, purging. 
That's one of the reasons he uses it. He's speaking to Jewish believers, no doubt some Gentiles. But he's speaking in language they would pick up right away. And so Jesus rising from the dead, absolutely vital. Absolutely vital. If he'd stayed in the grave, his sacrifice would not have benefited us. It shows not only that God accepted his sacrifice, but it shows us that he is our living Savior. He's not just a thought. He's, just not, he's not just words in a book. But we have someone on which we can rest our immortal souls. <clears throat> He's not here. God raised him up. God raised him. He's risen, as he said. wonder what Peter thought. The Lord had so rebuked him. I'm going to die. We're going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. They're going to turn me over. The hands of the, the, the Gentiles are going to mistreat me. And they're going to crucify me. But I'm going to rise again. Peter said, may that never be. If that had never been, we would have no salvation. No, this is it. This is it. He's risen, as he said. <clears throat> and it also shows, without any hesitation, death is conquered. And those of you who believe in him have no need to fear death. Death is conquered. So, in the resurrection, we see our resurrection. Those who repent and believe will know a day when he calls, when the trumpet sounds. And if we're still down in that coffin, it will open. We're just going to come right through. Now, that sounds crazy to people. It is a hope for those who repent and believe. I don't have to fear the graveyard. I mean, I, you know, if you want to, you could go out to the cemetery that's not too far from here and just spend the afternoon commanding people to rise and see how the day goes. Right? Have you ever tried it? Do you want to try to put it to, to sleep in your mind? Go stand and command the dead. Find, the, find the, fra- the freshest grave you can find. And command them to come out. They don't. Now I know everybody knows the story. They thought somebody was dead. They're in the coffin. Somehow or another they get out. Right. But that's not resurrection. Newspaper like to call it stuff like that. But it isn't. Resurrection is ceasing life. You're dead. Really dead. And the very power that created the universe commands you to rise up. Live. So, it was in the resurrection that God the Father declared Jesus the Son. That's exactly why we're talking about this. Remember, Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 through 4 talk about the Son. It couldn't be talking the way that it does without the resurrection. And it's in that that God gives him the title, 
the Son con connected to his entrance into heaven. It's, it's when he sits down. We're almost there. It's when he sits down that the declaration comes. Thou art my son. Today have I begotten thee. Well, listen to the Apostle Paul. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Holy Scriptures there means the Old Testament. Concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David because of God's promise in 2 Samuel 14. We'll get to that later. Not today. <clears throat> but he's by the Holy Scriptures called the Son. And as, let me say for the benefit of those who are visiting with us, we have pointed out and we will see along the way as we move through Hebrews, the word Son is used in two ways. There are times when it applies to Jesus, the eternal Son of God, member of the Trinity, if I can use that term. He is the second person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's always been the Son, always begotten by the Father. He always has been, is now, ever will be. He is God, God the Son, as the Son of God. And Hebrews talks about that. But it also talks about this day, which seems to be long after Jesus went into the world, or uh, uh, after Jesus came into the world, he is called son in a slightly different way. He is declared son when he rises up into heaven. This is what's being talked about. He rises again. He is, listen again, he... Paul called to be an apostle, separated under the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David, according to the flesh, this was the Davidic covenant, come to pass and declared to be the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. In other words, when we see the glory of the risen Christ, when he ascended into heaven, there was a declaration for the God-man. He wasn't the God-man. He was by God's appointment, but his humanity did not exist in eternity before creation. By the way, I'm not making up any kind of new thing here. This is a 2,000-year-old doctrine. It's just very often we don't hear much except the same things as opposed to looking carefully at the Word of God. The, the term son applies to the eternal son and the term Son applies to the God-man. We'll spend a little more time on that next week. That's why there's going to be a part two. So, in the resurrection, he's declared Son of God, 
But the resurrection isn't the end. The resurrection isn't the end. The next is something that many of us don't give much time or thought to. And, and I, until I did the Free Grace Broadcaster on the Ascension, because I had my, uh, my conscience and my interest was pricked. <clears throat> the, the, the Ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ is important because it is his rising up from this world into the realm of everlasting glory and taking his seat. And we'll talk about why he takes that seat. We're coming to that. We're almost there. So the son ascended into heaven to accomplish his redemptive mission. It was part of it. <clears throat> the gospel, uh, and let me be clear. I don't want anybody to be confused. Jesus paid for our sins in the shedding of his blood on Calvary. God accepted his sacrifice and showed him conquering over death in the resurrection. He had to be raised again. That's the two parts of Christ's mission that are set before us plainly in the gospel. <clears throat> so, once he was resurrected, he made himself known. And that brings us to this heading. The son ascended into heaven to accomplish uh, his redemptive mission. In other words, it's still going on. He has saved his people from their sins, but there's more to their salvation, to what God has provided for them. Not diminishing the cross, we're not diminishing anything. We're just talking about what Christ also did as part of his love and mediator, a mediatorial work for us. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, verses 14 and 19 says, Afterward, he appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat and upbraided them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. I was like to remind the Lord's people the women were the first believers and the men were the first unbeliever. Come on, guys. Get on board. The women came running and said he's risen. And their thought was generally something like women shouldn't go into graveyards before sun up. They thought their words were foolish. But it was the truth. It was gospel truth. <clears throat> so they, the Lord rebuked them because he didn't uh, receive the women that he sent them to tell them. Praise the Lord. And it says, So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven. There it is. After he spoke, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. There's that language. It's a beautiful language. He sat on the right hand of God. Now, later, Acts chapter 1, 8 through 9, records that Jesus gathered. Now, this is 
Mark gives us the very short view. He gives us the, the, for those of you that like everything in like three sentences, that's it. And for those of you that like more detail, well, this is for you. Jesus said after he was crucified, he'd come to be with his disciples. And he said to them, ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, I don't know about you, this is one of my favorite verses. While they beheld, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. Now, we haven't had anything like that happen to us either. We all might have interesting stories, but we don't have one like this. The one that they had seen crucified, the one that they had seen and thought failed the mission, or man, we don't know what to think about him because we thought he was the one that was going to straighten everything out. They saw him alive. They rejoiced. They fellowshiped with him. And as they were talking, after he gives his last instructions, he goes straight up. We don't read the rest of it, but it's wonderful because the angel says, why are you looking up? (laughs) Can you see it? They're all standing there. I love that picture. So my question to you is, when he went up, where did he go? Where did he go? Where did the one who died on Calvary's cross rose again and was the son by this glorious work? Where did he go? Well, this is the beauty of our passage. That brings us to our third uh, subheading, and it's the son's priesthood and kingship come together. The son's priesthood and kingship come together. Now remember, when we started looking at this exordium, I told you that it was very, very rich. And it is. And we haven't, we haven't mined all the stuff that's, that's there. Uh, but we are making some progress. And what we saw there was a, a, a huge contrast. Old covenant with the prophets. God spake through the prophets. But now he speaks to us through his son, by his son, in his son. And then by the Spirit's guidance, we're given seven things that show the splendor, the glory, the beauty of Jesus Christ and who he is and why he is vastly superior to those faithful prophets in the Old Testament. The new covenant is so great, as I've said before, so much higher, so much more glorious that it's like looking at the sun in July 
when there's not a cloud in the sky. You can't do it. Not without damage. But looking up at that sun and its radiance and its power as compared to lighting a match. The Old Testament was important. We do not chop it out of the Bible and throw it away as many do. Glorious as it was, it was glorious because it was all about Christ pointing to Christ. It was all about Christ pointing to Christ. And we're seeing the fulfillment of it in this passage. What we're seeing is not only contrast and the superiority of Christ and the new covenant compared to the Old Testament prophets, which is a remarkable uh, contrast and comparison. We're seeing the priesthood and kingship come together. I want to consider the text again for just a moment. When he had by himself purged our sins. When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Zechariah chapter 6, verse 13. He shall sit and rule. He shall sit and rule upon his throne. That's pointing exactly to what's happening here. And he shall be a priest upon his throne. Psalm 110, 1, 2, and 4 prophesied the same. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right, uh, at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Are you hearing it? It's right in there. If he's a priest, he's a priest that's ruling. And what you're seeing is what what he accomplished in his bloody death and his glorious resurrection. He purged our sins and then he rose up in glory while his disciples are stunned watching him disappear. Where did he go? To the right hand of his father. He entered glory. Where there are millions upon millions of angels. What was it like. When he came in. Oh man. Just think about the glory of that. He's back. He's here. There's something else about this. That should grab us. What you're also seeing, not only the, the, the greatness of the new covenant, not only the extraordinary difference between the new and the old and the idea of his priesthood and his kingship, but you're looking at his humiliation and his exaltation. I mean, brethren, this is, I don't know about you, but I mean, this this fills me with awe. It fills me with joy. It fills me with that desire to be there. It's right there in Zechariah, Old Covenant. 
right there in Psalm 110, it's the old covenant. But in Christ, and as we see him, as he is set before us in this passage, he purged our sins, and then he sat down. Let's talk about that a little bit. Just got a few minutes left, but I want us to get to this. Psalm 110, verses 1 and 2, and verse 4, do go on to say, The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. Jesus is ruling and reigning, and his enemies are in his sights. Psalm 110 is a vital part of the letter to the Hebrews as well as to the New Testament. It has been estimated that Psalm 110, the passages that we're looking at, that it is directly quoted or directly alluded to 22 to 27 times. Depending on who you read, B-22 could be anywhere between there and 27 times. Most would say that it's the most quoted or alluded to passage from the Old Testament in the New. And what's it about? A kingly priest, a priestly king, someone sitting on a throne. Psalm 110 has always been considered a messianic psalm. The first thing to consider is the two words, sat down. (laughs) You know, those are the words that we kind of move over sometimes. We don't think a whole lot about them. He sat down. Well, we said you came in here and sat down. Uh, But it didn't mean for you what it did for him. And it doesn't mean for you what it means for us for him to sit down. Why did Jesus enter his glory and not just stand and get the applause like these guys that, you know, make a goal, make a touchdown, uh, you know, whatever, whatever sport you're into, you know, and then they run around, you know, look at me. Am I not wonderful? Thank you. Thank you. You know, I, there are people who will sell for 10 or 15 people doing that, but there are those who get thousands to do it. <clears throat> And they've paid to do it. And they go and worship the flesh. Oh, you're fabulous. But they don't think Christ is great. And greater, so far greater. All right, someone kicks this goal. No one can believe the the precision and the accuracy. Yeah, I mean, you know, I've seen it and go, man, yeah. But Jesus said, let there be light. And there was light. No comparison. Sorry, you're going to have to run off the field on that one because no comparison. Again, I'm not putting down anybody who's worked and becomes good at what they do. I mean, we love great doctors, great pilots, people that are skilled, great artists, and all that kind of stuff. But we end up very often not realizing it, worshiping the flesh. Just be cautious. Appreciate things that, that, that people make. Even some of, the, some of the things that, you know, those who are not Christians, they're extraordinary gifted. But nothing compares to creation. 
when you look at this universe and realize that Christ not only created it by speaking, but he's holding it all together by the word of his power. That doesn't make me want to run out on the field. It makes me want to fall down on my face and worship. So why didn't he sit down? Why didn't he just enjoy the applause a little bit? Entering glory, the presence of the Father that sent him, millions upon millions. I can tell you, it tells us that when they start shouting and glorying in heaven, it's loud, it's powerful, it moves. Read Revelation 19. So, if we study the earthly tabernacle, we find out that there are no chairs included for their priests. No place to sit down. Their work was never done. Jesus sitting down manifested to the universe, to the heavenly host, that his mission was accomplished. When he sat down, it was the assurance of our salvation forever. Everything necessary to save and keep his people was done. He's finished. Now, he still goes on interceding for us. He intercedes for us every moment of every day. But his work of redemption was complete. The bloodshedding was over. And we're saved. <laughs> That's the most important sitting down you'll ever know about. So, he accomplished everything necessary to save his people from their sins, paying for his sins, the pouring out of his precious blood and conquering death and his resurrection. He rose up into glory and said, it's done. When we read the words on his right hand, this is crucial. It reveals that the God-man is now exalted to the highest place of glory in the universe. I've known some famous people in my life. And people, unfortunately, will do almost anything to get around famous people if they can. And Christians do it too. They just sometimes have it in a different field of people or category of people. There's no one like Jesus. He is exalted now. He's exalted. He is seated at his father's right hand. Now, there's a lot of discussion, and I don't know that I'll be able to resolve all of the challenges with it. Are there two thrones there? 
Are there two thrones? Is he in a throne, a separate throne on the right hand? Or is it on the right hand of that throne? Because Revelation tells us that he sits in his father's throne. So that's one of those good things to wrestle about at lunchtime. Take it out, talk about it, read Revelation again and again. Read the various parts where thrones are mentioned all through the scripture. But I'll tell you what, whether there's one or two, Jesus is in the highest. It's in the highest. It's not a second-rate throne. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they're all God. Now, here's what we want to close with. Number one, apply this to your heart today. Especially if you're wrestling with something, you're down, you're blue, things have been rough, it's something that's eating at you, can't sleep sometimes, whatever. The son's mission was successfully accomplished. And that's for every one of his children to delight in and to lift their heart with. Whatever else happens to that thing you're in or that thing you're wrestling with or whatever someone's doing to you, etc., etc., all that's going to end. But Christ in his love is absolutely eternal. Absolute's a ridiculous word to use with eternal, but it's the fact. It is eternal. What has been accomplished for you what has been accomplished for me is what I need for eternity, but it's what I need now, right now, every day. When the Lord shows me that I need to repent again, His mission was accomplished. My sins were pardoned. He loves me, and he's my advocate in heaven. I've got someone on my side, and he doesn't condemn me. There is no condemnation for them which are in Christ Jesus. Glory to God. Secondly, the king of the universe is the holy God-man, the son of God, Jesus Christ, the king of the universe. We hear that, and it's so big that it's tiny in our thinking. Like I said, I've been around some famous people and they need the Savior. I can tell you. And if you talk to any of the, 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 the conference preachers, if you get a hold of a man who's a faithful man of God, you'll find a man who will tell you how much he needs Christ every day. Not just soaking up the accolades. Oh, what a great sermon. No, he will tell you, couldn't do it without Christ. It's all for Christ. Can't do a thing without Christ. He told me that without him, I can do nothing. And he's proved it to me. And every Christian ought to be able to say that. The king of the, the, king of the universe loves us. He's our friend. It is the holy God-man. And he became a man so that we can join him in that glory. And we will govern the universe with him. 
When he sat down, it sealed everything. And then God's children can confidently run their race looking unto Jesus. We're going to be uh, talking about the Christian life a good bit throughout this. And of course, that looking unto Jesus is here in this beautiful book of Hebrews. Uh, Isaac Ambrose, uh, if you have never read it and you have a couple of years in your life you would like to do that with, it's a big book. It's a big Puritan book. Have a dictionary nearby. But if you sit down and make it through that book, you will see why Christ is worthy of all your praise, all your life. Come and unburden on him. Come and praise him enthusiastically, joyfully. There ought to be a Holy Spirit electricity in the air, if I can say it that way, because we're coming to praise the one who governs all things brilliantly, perfectly. He will never fail. He will never make a mistake. Now, we blame him with that sometimes. Oh, why'd that happen? Because you need him for everything. He's humbling you. He's making you more like Christ. There are a lot of answers to that. But the issue is, he's the one in control. We, therefore, knowing that whatever comes, whatever comes, wonderful times or horrifying times, we have a great and glorious Savior who did everything infinitely necessary to save us and then sat down when he broke into heaven. And now he's interceding for you, for me. When we struggle, when we're crushed, when we are broken, when we're joyful, he's interceding for us. Wear that out. As long as you're breathing, wear that out as much as you can. He won't get tired. Martin Luther would confess for hours to his confessor. And they would say, Brother Martin, you don't need to keep going. Jesus will never say that. Brethren, Jesus ascended. He entered glory and sat down. He's on the right hand of the Father, ruling, enthroned, glorious, and watching and overseeing every breath we take and every step we take. Love him. Rest in him. Cast yourself entirely upon him. And may we praise God that we see his humiliation that became his glorious exaltation. We're serving the exalted king. Amen. Father, we thank you for your mercy. Oh, what great. What great mercy that I show us. We deserve thy most violent wrath. And yet, 
Thou didst take our wickedness and punish thy son in our place. And now he is seated in that in those regions of splendor and majesty, making us more like him and waiting for that day when thou dost give him the word, he rends the heavens and comes down for us. Oh, what a glorious thought. Father, for those who do not know thee here, Wouldst thou help them to see that the only way they will ever see you is as judge, except they repent and embrace thy son by faith. Help them. Help them. And for thy dear people, Father, it's so easy for our flesh to sag. It's so easy for our spirits to be brought down. Help us ever to remember that Christ is seated at thy right hand in the most glorious and important place in existence. And he is for us and intercedes for us. Thank you for your son. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.